Welcome to another episode of the Awake Asia podcast. This is Luke, your pilot, your captain for the show. Each week, I bring you experts, thought leaders, and everyday people doing extraordinary things to help you live a fitter, healthier, more purpose-driven, conscious lifestyle. This week, I'm excited to introduce you to my friend and former mentor, Ben Xiong. I lost my job in the corporate industry during the 2008 global financial crisis, and Ben was the one that paved the way for me into becoming a personal trainer in one of the busiest gyms in Melbourne, Australia. Almost a decade ago, so much has changed since my days hustling for sessions as a PT. Before I came to Singapore, I was one of Ben's strength coaches at his facility, Australian Strength Performance. A little bit about Ben. Beyond being the founder of this world-class strength and conditioning facility, Ben is a level 5 Poliquin strength coach, ISSN sports nutrition specialist, and a highly sought-after international presenter. His expertise in specifically combining training protocols with optimal nutrition has seen him produce top-ranked athletes in over 16 sports, as well as champion bodybuilders, fitness models, and pageant queens. In this episode, I chat with Ben about how to build and maintain motivation for any fitness goal. We also chatted about the fitness industry and what makes a great personal trainer or coach. If you're looking for some training hacks too, this episode might be for you. Beyond that, we too had an honest discussion about nutrition. Although I agreed to disagree on certain aspects, it was definitely a fascinating conversation we had. Now on to the episode. Thank you very much for being here. I know Expro was epic and you just had a big session. Brain fried, hopefully not. But thank you for being on the podcast. I mean, we go way back, don't we? We do. We do indeed. And I, I thank you for this opportunity that you've given to me to be on this podcast. I'm My brain is actually fired up rather than uh, fried. I, I love being able to share my passion. And today was a, a good day with a whole bunch of awesome participants. And what better day than to end with this podcast? Indeed. I mean, um, for a start, let me just put my phone off. Sure. Uh, for me, I think, like I said, you know, you literally saw me. Um, I was I actually interviewed Rick Schnabel uh, oh, okay. a, a few weeks ago, and I was saying that he saw me literally from the womb, and you, yep. you probably even before that. Just a few steps. <laughs> just, just, just a, a few, few steps. steps. <laughs> I mean, I I still think back about the time that we were at what was that club? Uh, Baroque, and you were telling oh, me. Gosh. You were telling me, Luke. Just, memories yeah you <laughs> just become a personal trainer i was like oh should i go on my own or should i become your mentee and stuff like that that seems like a lifetime ago man it, it has been many years ago but i'll tell you what it, that is just part of that journey isn't it it's uh it's a journey that when you look back lots of fond memories it's, it's been an interesting journey as well it's a journey that uh, has given you your voice in that sense. Indeed, indeed. I mean, it has, it has been an in, uh, interesting journey. And of course, you know, we were back in the early days with Melbourne Central. I just think of, mm. you know, when we had our own little clique and we had our own little, little faction. <laughs> our own oh, little, wow. little faction training and making sure that other trainers don't see what we're doing and oh, hiding the program. Those were the days. You know, interestingly, now that you're bringing this up, when I was having a chat with uh, an ex-colleague of ours, Ian, Uh, One of the things that he was asking me was, you know, what lessons have you taken away since Melbourne Central? And, you you know, funny enough, uh, I feel that whatever has happened has shaped me to be the person I am. Uh, And and one of those people in my life is yourself. You know, uh, you have definitely pushed my boundaries in thinking a certain way and and behaving a certain way. And uh, one, one of the biggest takeaways is that just like what you mentioned in Melbourne Central, because of the environment around me in protecting the information that I've spent my heart and money to, uh, to learn, of course. I didn't want people to see what we did. And that actually grew me to someone who was selfish, who thought that information was something to be kept. Yep. Uh, it was something that if I could regret anything, really, that would be what I would regret. Well, I wouldn't call it any regret right now at this point in time because it's really shaped the way I think and what I do. After moving to our new location, 
uh, in, in Melbourne and running my own center right now. Funny enough, the tables have turned and I am now passionate about educating. Do you see? So I'm out there and I am furiously giving away information, more information uh, than I ever have given away. And one of these things is, it's funny because I feel that the more I give away now, the more I get back. Indeed. It, it is it's completely turned. So one of the biggest things I would tell uh, people is that what I've learned is never be selfish. The more you give, the more you feel that the universe will somehow give you back in abundance of what you give out. The more I give, the more I actually learn. You know, so that's that's something that, uh, yeah, it's actually changed really changed my perspective after after uh, after all that's happened. Yeah, I think that's that's very interesting you said that because back in the day, I remember that, you know, like I was saying earlier, we were guarding the programs and we were really, mm. really secretive and everything was top secret. And I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of your a lot of your Instagram posts and of course being an educator I just see you sharing a lot more and it's almost like a black or white and it's almost mm. like a, a, a whole different person and I think for, for me right now in that sense I was always stuck in that that time and I think through time I, I realized that I think we both have changed mm, absolutely and, and I think a lot of it was through the courses that we did together I think I think absolutely. back about the time we were doing the course with Rick Schnabel and how we're doing practitioners and then how we're doing masters and then i think we were kind of getting rid of our own stuff yep yep and, I, I would not disagree absolutely yeah yeah and and just to see where you are right now um i mean it's incredible i mean both of us have really progressed and i think about the time that we were in melbourne central and i don't know there's something about melbourne central fitness first which kind of makes personal trainers take the next step, there are a few other trainers that have really taken Absolutely. it upon themselves and grown their brands, grown their businesses. So I find yep. that really, really fascinating. Did you? Do you realize that as well? Correct. I mean, if you look around us, I mean, there's so many, uh, in Australia anyway, a lot of the more successful personal training businesses has actually been sprung from individuals that come from Melbourne Central. Uh, one of the reasons I actually think that's the case is because it was a, a gym that was the heart of the city. So Melbourne Central was the busiest gym sure out was. of all the fitness versus. Sure we was. had about 37 different businesses running in that place. So for those of you that don't know, in Melbourne Central in, in Australia, Fitness First is not a uh, an employee, employer sort of uh, a gym. It is one where you buy a franchise in and you're an independent contractor. So you're running your individual business out of that place. Now we had 37 different trainers at one point. So 37 different businesses vying for clients. It's either you had to become extremely effective in building a business or, you know, essentially you ship out, you leave the space. So I think for the trainers that's had survived there over those years, we have become extremely efficient in building our niche. And when you are so efficient in building your niche, why would you continue to stay in a small place? You might as well want to get out to the sea and grow your niche, right? So you would see a lot of these businesses, you, you know, we have friends, obviously yep. mutual friends that have grown their businesses and have taken it out of Fitness First and being extremely successful in, in growing that, but each one running it very differently. You know, everyone has a different model from your group classes to very individualized personal training to training athletes, some of them even moving to emotions and, and relationships and all that kind of stuff, which is also very niche. And I agree with that about, you know, taking businesses, uh, taking their own brand and businesses out of the confines of Melbourne Central Fitness First. And, and what I found as well and what you taught me back in the day was, you know, we, we both know of many personal trainers who are very, very highly skilled in their craft, but mm. they don't really know how to sell. Yeah. On the flip side, you know, people who know how to sell who do not know Jack. Yep. Yep. But the thing is that the guys that do not know Jack actually succeed and thrive, which makes me think that, you know, personal training, especially in that environment, it's not just what you know, but it's how you sell yourself, how you present yourself. And I think that's often often blindsided by a lot of personal trainers thinking that that it's just knowledge, isn't mm, it? Absolutely. I, I think at the end of the day, um, it's like this. If you go see a hairdresser, a lot of the times you stay with the hairdresser because of that relationship the hairdresser's built with you, right? They know your story inside out. They know your name. They know your kids. They know what's going on in your life and you feel comfortable sitting in that chair getting your hair styled. A personal trainer is really much the same thing, right? So uh, if you invest in your clients from an emotional point of view and they like the way you train them, they uh, associate with you from an emotional point of view, 
then you're more than likely to be able to sell them your services and keep them with you. If you are just black and white majority of the time and you're more concerned about just getting results but not them as a person, then you may not be as effective as doing that. Oh, for sure. So I know you run uh, like an internship program and now you coach personal trainers as well. So in your definition, I mean, you've been in the fitness industry. We both have kind of been in the fitness industry for a while. What would you define as a good personal trainer? Would you call a coach a good personal trainer or would you put that okay, in a different what, category? What, okay, I guess I guess maybe like even backtracking a little bit more. Yep. So I guess I come out of the Cert 3, Cert 4 or whatever fitness and then I become a personal trainer. So when does that transition happen from personal trainer to coach? Great, okay. Great statement. Uh, for me, a personal trainer is obviously someone who understands the basics of fitness, for one, for sure. But a good personal trainer is someone who is willing to step out of their box to learn more. Now, there is so much knowledge in this industry, really. There's a lot of information and a lot of information is conflicting. The problem with a lot of personal trainers is when they go out there and they're latched to one style of training or one train of thought, that becomes the Bible, that becomes the word. I think a good personal trainer is someone who needs to be critical in their thinking. So they need to step back and go, great, there's a whole sea of information. Let me be active in my part to learn that information. Now, I only know what I know, but I also don't know what I don't know. Let me learn what I don't know first. So they will go out there, they will start to seek and understand and find out. Now, get as many different opinions as you can, which is great. Learn from as many people as you can. And then from there, start to form your niche, start to form your judgment. Where do you want to move? How do you want to flow? In this personal training industry, you would find that there, there really isn't a black or white. There is a gray. And the gray means how good are you at putting information together specifically for a client, right? And I think if they're willing to take that step and always have that idea of wanting to learn more, that's going to be a, a great step for becoming a good personal trainer. Now, on the flip side, if you're going to transition to a coach, then not only do you need that, but you need to internalize whatever you're speaking. So if you're a coach, how can you inspire your clients then to make sure that they are getting the results that they want, but they are intrinsically mot motivated by what you're telling them? So how can, you, how can you look at your clients, not just from a training perspective or a nutrition perspective, but a, a holistic perspective? You know, because we understand fitness is not just about what is physical or what is eating. It's also what is their mindset. You know, understanding your clients in how they think, uh, in how they support, the, how their thinking supports their continual actions and lifestyles is something that you continually need to work with them. Some people are good at that and some people are not as good. So you need to learn also how to balance your time with that. And I think that's very, very important to understand not just the training protocols, nutrition, but even with the nutrition itself, it's also hormonals, mm. hormonal balance. It's also um, representational systems, like how they think, how they feel Completely, and, and, yeah. and stuff like that. So, so I think that's, that's really important. So, you know, you've obviously coached a lot of people um, from athletes to, to moms and dads. Uh, what is the best thing that people can do to kind of sustain and have a specific goal and sustain change over months, over years? All right, let's, uh, let's keep this simple and let's maybe identify three points yep. on what, uh, why people yep. tend to lose out on their motivation. Yep. I think one of those points is a very obvious point and that is injury. People do too much too fast and they get injured. Now, injury, as simple as it is, is the one thing that deters someone from continuing the journey. Let's say, for example, you're wanting a fat loss journey. You start in January. Everything is great. You go to the gym. You decide to go there six days a week. You train hard. But in that time, you don't consider recovery. So you're going to get injured in that process. Now, you're going to see good changes until you get injured. And then when you get injured, what happens? You can't train. You can train as well. You injure your shoulder, your knee, you can squat, you can do this. And you start to get discouraged because the changes that you see are starting to unchange itself, right? So you get depressed, you start to eat again, and then you spiral out. So a lot of it happens because of injury. I think if you are smart, you need to be able to use a program that potentially would prevent you from getting injured, which also means that enough recovery a program that doesn't overload on your body too much. That means take your progress slowly. Uh, and also learn how to assess the type of exercises that you do. It may not be suitable for you. So injury is, is a very obvious one. I think motivation as well. Uh, one other thing is that people expect to see too much change 
in too short of a time. Now, how impatient are we in our society? Everything is about convenience now, right? I want it now, I get it now. It comes the same with results. Now, it's taken you 50 years to get fat and you want to lose all that weight in a matter of weeks. That's not gonna happen, buddy. So I think people need to understand that, hey, if you're going to, you wanna lose weight, you set a target, that's great. Set yourself a target, but understand you're not gonna get results straight away. Pace yourself. So I think everyone should start to make little micro goals on on which they can hit, and then from those goals start to propel themselves, right? Uh, Now in saying that as well, don't expect massive changes to start off with. Continue to move on following the process. I think what they need to do is trust that process. Fat loss, for example, is not a journey uh, that is linear. You can't expect to lose fat you know, a kilo a week. Sometimes you will plateau three, four weeks at a time. But if you're following the process, you can trust that you will continue to lose fat. And I think a lot of people drop off the bandwagon because if they hit a plateau, that's it for them. It's like, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm not losing any more fat. Uh, I'm going to, you know, stuff it. I'm, I'm just going to go back on my goals and I'm just going to eat and, and all that. So I think that one of those main things is, is really learn to pace themselves and not expect something too fast. And then the last one, uh, I guess that is uh, important as well, is that when people drop off uh, in terms of motivation, they need to ask themselves, why do they start training in the first place? What essentially were their goals? You know, if you do not have a, a deep connection to why you wanted to train, you would drop off. If training is a means to an end for you to look good, you would do everything you can to look good. But the moment you hit that point, what are you going to do? You're like, okay, that's my goal. I'm done. And you're going to start eating crap again. You're going to revert your lifestyle. But remember, if you have worked so hard to get to that one point, to stay at that point, you need to maintain your hard work, not reverse your hard work. And I think that's the dropping point for most people is where they go, oh, I've got to this point. Now, what am I going to do? You need to sustain it. Oh, no, no, no. Can I just start eating the 12 donuts I used to eat? Well, guess what? You will be back to where you, you were because you're doing exactly the same things. So in saying that, in short, it is making it a lifestyle, isn't it? You need to set a goal that allows you to make it a lifestyle which means plan small little steps ahead of you, achieve those goals before you move on and don't expect it to be a linear process. Why is such an important important um, factor, especially when I go back to the time when I tore my pack and you helped rehabilitate mm. me uh, to my 2010 competition and then 2013, my why was wanting to compete again as a vegan. Fully moving forward, it was a why that dro- drove me to really do what I am doing today. Mm. But for people that, can't seem to find their why who are just on a, on a very top level. Well, I want to fit into my wedding dress. You know, I want to tuck in my shirt. I want to, you know, I just want to look good. How can they learn to find a deep intrinsic motivation within them to actually sustain and progress long-term? Well, my question is, do they really need to find a deep intrinsic motivation? Because everyone has different goals, right? And to us, for example, we look at them and go, oh, okay, you just want to achieve that. Yes, but to them, it may actually mean something different. So it's subjective. I think any goal can be a good goal so long as you are willing to work towards that. So be it, okay, I want to lose two kilos. Be it, I want to shred up for this music festival. Be it what, whatever they Which want to do. always the case at Melbourne Central. That's right, right? Uh, that's fine, so long as it's a goal. Now, the power of Um, the human mind is this, the moment you know that you can hit a goal most of the time, you would want to pursue another goal. If let's say your goal was to drop to, you know, from 30% to 25% and you achieve that, most of the time you will find that people are not going to linger at 25% because there is more to go and it gives them empowerment to know, okay, I've hit this goal, maybe I should set a new one. And I think that is the point where someone like a coach or a trainer can step in and go, okay, this is great. You've done great to lose all this or to get to that goal. Now, what do you want to do from here? Do there, is there a new goal we can help you set? Set your focus on something. Now, remember this goal may be anything. It's not, it's not just about body composition. It could be, let's make this now a lifestyle because you have made these changes and these changes has given you more energy to play with your children. You are feeling healthier. You are not getting injured as much. You're not getting tired as much. Do you feel good on this? 
If you do, great. How can we make you feel better? Now, before people, may, maybe you would never realize that you could actually feel better because the mundaneness of your life is doing day things, is doing the same thing day in, day out. You may be eating crap day in, day out, and you don't realize you could feel better. Now that you have felt better, do you want more? Let's pursue more. So people only know what they know. And someone, like I said, a coach or a trainer can come in and actually spark them towards the right direction. But having a goal is the main thing, right? So it doesn't really matter whether that goal initially it's it's all out or intrinsic or it's just something that's on the surface. Speaking of goals and fat loss, the first person that comes to mind is George because I remember right. George, I mean, he's for a little bit of background, George is a coach at a Australian Strength Performance, a good friend of ours as well. And I remember when George was at Melbourne Central, he was, I can't remember how many kilos was he back in the day? It was big, about 170. 170. And I still remember one thing that always stuck with me was the very, that time when I met George, every time I shook his hand, he had a very, very soft handshake. I was just like, dude, you are big, strong guy. Why are you shaking my hand? Like He's about six foot two. This guy is solid. Yeah, he is solid. I think I went back to Melbourne a few months ago and even prior to that and I, what my reference point was shaking his hand and now I was like, George, hey, just let go, dude, let go because he's become so confident and it's he's a perfect example of wanting to feel better, wanting to feel healthier and now he's taking it upon himself and his brother Nissi as well. Um, yep. I think back on Pat as well. Pat used to be my ex-client um, back at Melbourne Central where it all started. And, and I think it's, it's amazing, isn't it, just to see these guys uh, where they are right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think a, a lot of change in mentality, a lot of change in uh, understanding their potential. That's really what it is, you know. Uh, I think the, the good thing around, if you look at Pat and George, is that they had people like us around them that believed in them. Uh, and often it starts with someone else believing in you before you can actually move on right so uh it's it's great that they have taken that upon themselves and they've gone okay well you know you see in me what i don't see let's try to see myself deeper and they've moved on and, and very much you talked about george and his brother nissi is very much the same sort of build is re was really heavy but a much shorter version of george and nissi now is actually doing his certificate three and four in fitness wow that's he, amazing uh, he's great it's just we just finished our internship back at the center and nissi was also part of that internship as of last year, the guy now has lost over 35 kilos at the end of last year till, till now. And he is, this guy is supercharged. He's, he's putting George on his toes because he's, <laughs> he's catching up fast. He's leaning out week by week and he's feeling better. He's talking the talk, he's walking the walk. And again, it's one of those things where, you know, you can keep talking to him and put him in an environment, but unless he fails, he, he, he sees that. You know, he captures that, nothing would happen. And I think he caught that spark last year. And he went, okay, you know what? I'm going to really make this change right now. And he's done that. Great. And I guess now that we're on fat loss, I definitely want to go pick your brain on, you know, fat loss. You know, I understand that how we store fat is based on our hormonal balances or imbalances to a certain degree. Maybe you can give us like the 101 on, uh, 101 on the key concepts on why and how we store fat. So storing fat in your body can be anything. Uh, well, let's start with, it could be a genetic predisposition uh, on how much fat you store. It could be body type as well. So if you're looking at, you know, typically you look at what we call your, your phenotypical uh, classification, which is your mesomorph, your endomorph, your ectomorph. We know the ecto ectomorph people tend to be very lean uh, and they dedicate a lot of their development in the embryo stage towards their nervous system right so they're, they're very highly nervous they've got a lot of nervous energy they're very lean people now the endomorphs on the other hand are very different they they direct a lot of the energy towards their digestive system so these guys are the guys that typically will store a lot more fat on the body but they're also the people that will also put on a lot more muscle on their body so even from a genotype or a phenotype point of view from the from the womb you can start to tell certain body types so that's how they would store fat. Now, storing fat can also be a, pre a genetic predisposition to things, for example, how well you can detoxify certain estrogens. If your ability in your body is poor in detoxifying estrogens, you tend to store it. Now, we understand that your body naturally produces estrogens, but at the same time, you can take in a lot of these 
what we call environmental estrogens or xenoestrogens into your system. These are chemicals that look like estrogen, but they're not estrogen. And so what happens is your body, when they take in these chemicals, they start to behave as though you have an overload of estrogen and you start to store fat. So typically when we talk about someone who's high in estrogen, they exhibit a, a what we call a pear-shaped profile, estrogenic profile, where they will store a lot more fat on the lower half. Now, that becomes quite specific, isn't it? And you're looking at a lot of females saying, oh, my mom had big hips and my grandmother had big hips and so I'm, I'm having big hips. Now, there is a difference between having a hip structure, that means your bones are, are wide and as a result, your hips are wider, to someone who holds a lot of fat on the lower half. If, you're, if your grandmother or your mother holds a lot more fat on the lower half and that's why you think you hold more fat on the lower half, that may not be due to the fact that oh, it's genetic and that's that, it may be because your generations before you may be bad estrogen detoxifiers and that inability to detoxify estrogen is passed down to you. So then we need to look at how can you actually change that and get rid of these external estrogens because that determines fat storage, right? So that is an example of uh, you know, how you're storing fat as well. For sure. So I guess xenoestrogens, I understand that that would come from, of course, your beauty care products. That would, would be one. Maybe you could share a few other aspects that these xenoestrogens can enter the system or where they come from. Mm -hmm. So xenoestrogens, like I said, are false estrogens. They resemble our natural estrogen molecules. You would find them typically from petrochemicals. So petrochemicals, as you know, are rampant around us. Uh, we use that for a variety of different things. Uh, some of them are really effective in holding smell, scent. Uh, and, and those kind of xenoestrogens, we call them phthalates. Now, phthalates, for example, hold onto scent very well. Hence, they are being used in any sort of scented, uh, you know, scented candles to perfumes to, uh, you know, that, that thing you hang in your car. Uh, to what we call new car smell, which is a, a, a spray being sprayed onto your car to make it smell new and all that kind of stuff. So phthalates hold on to scent very well. And you would see that all around you, phthalate is a xenoestrogen. If you inhale a lot of that, it actually acts as a castrating agent because it increases the, the estrogen uh, loading on your system. That means your testosterone is suppressed. Uh, that's not a good thing. Now, phthalates is only one of them. You get you find a whole range of other ones, such as parabens. Parabens is also another xenoestrogen. It's from a, a petrochemical, and you will find parabens in your cosmetic products, in your hair products, uh, from anything from gels to facial creams to shampoos. Uh, you would see a lot of that sort of stuff. So these are just an example. Now, uh, if you're looking at a food example, for example, you might also liken something like margarine to a xenoestrogen. Right, or plastics. Now, margarine under the microscope really is about one molecule difference away from what a plastic is, is what we call a trans fat. So yes, it's a vegetable fat, but it's a vegetable fat that is a solid in room temperature. Now we know that's not possible unless it's being put through a chemical process. And this chemical process alters and changes the chemical structure of the vegetable oil to make it something that resembles a plastic. So when we take in a lot of margarine, we can't actually detoxify a lot of that. And so that builds up and that starts to store fat in our system. So with that in mind, because I, being vegan and I've, you know, I know of many, maybe not margarine dairy sources, but olive oil sources, would that be, would that act the same way? Um, although they say it's trans fat free. So is, is that the same thing? If it's olive oil as a liquid, absolutely not. But as a solid? As a solid would be, yes. Because there is no way a vegetable oil will become a solid at all. Normally, when you look at vegetable oil, it is an unsaturated. And, and under science, the word unsaturated means that it is a liquid at room temperature. It shouldn't be a solid at room temperature. If your vegetable oil is a solid at room temperature, which is 27 degrees Celsius, then we know it's gone through a chemical reaction. Now, coconut oil is a saturated oil, which is a vegetable fat, but saturated. But that means it is a solid at room temperature. So that's what it should be. Wow. So I guess the next the next um, point would be soy because soy, from a plant-based side of things, I mean, I've, I hear, hear and seen a lot of research about soy, about its health benefits of it. Yep. Back in the day, I used to think of soy and the phytoestrogens from soy that have the same effect as these xenoestrogens. So I'd love to know what your take on soy is. Mm -hmm. 
Soy is, well, let's put it as this way. It's kind of a can of worms mm. because research will show you pros and research will show you cons. Uh, I'll give you my perspective on, on soy. Now, the thing about soy is that it can be a good source of protein. We know soy is very absorbable and it's great. However, the sources from where it comes from now also tells us that a lot of soy has been genetically modified. So we definitely got to be aware of it. And in being genetically modified, what that also means is that sometimes it is so genetically modified that it is resistant to a lot of the uh, insecticides that have been sprayed on it. One of these insecticides is quite popular. We call it Roundup. Okay. Exactly right. So if if your soy, for example, is actually uh, imp- uh, it it doesn't get affected by these uh, insect in- insecticides, that means that it can be sprayed very tediously on soy, which also means that the soy you're taking absorbs these insecticides, and you are putting it into your system. That actually changes and alters your testosterone and estrogen levels because, as we know, a lot of these insecticides uh, alter your sex hormones. So that becomes a problem. So, But apart from that, if you're looking at, let's say, I'm, I'm looking at soy from a good organic source, then what we need to understand is the impact it would have on different individuals. Let's say you look at the Asian population that has been exposed to soy for a much longer period of time throughout their genetic lifespan. Uh, if that's the case, your body would have adapted to using soy better. If you look at a Western civilization, for example, these guys have not been using soy for an extended period of time. So the the ability to utilize soy may still be at its infancy. Now, we often find that, for example, if we we talked about uh, estrogen detoxification, if you are someone who does not get rid of estrogen well, a detoxify estrogen well, that means you store estrogen. My question to you is then, whether it's bad estrogen or better estrogen, would you still want to load your body up with estrogen? So in individuals that you know you are bottom half heavy and you do take in uh, estrogens easily and you can't get rid of them, then my question is, is it really a necessity then for you to take in soy? Because we already know you are not an effective detoxifier. Yes, even though soy may be a much better source than obviously the petrochemicals that's coming in, right? So you're comparing a phytoestrogen versus a xenoestrogen question is, do you still want to put in an estrogen in your body? So if you were bottom half heavy, and I know that you are a poor detoxifier, perhaps I will aim to minimize soy intake still, because I still don't feel that it may have a positive impact on, on your health. So on the flip side, I think the other the other thing that comes to mind as well with soy, I mean, I understand definitely, um, it definitely adds to the system. Mm. But however, if we compare, for example, industrially farmed animals that, that will consume a high amount of soy and all these kinds of genetic grains. So would that be worse off? Would people be worse absolutely. off than, I guess, eating lower on the food chain? Yeah, absolutely. But again, see, a lot of, a lot of commercially farmed animals, and it depends on the type of commercially farmed animals. So if you're looking at you know pigs and stuff, sure, they'll be fed a range of different things. If you're looking at fish, they probably won't be fed soy but they'll be given a whole range of other things from colored pellets to pesticides and stuff like that. So the quality of food, the source of food is extremely important. And I think a lot of people need to be aware of where they get their foods from. So the, the, a lot of the times when you talk to people, people look in terms of macronutrients. Proteins, proteins, carbs, carbs, fats are fats. Well, not exactly because the source where your protein actually comes from makes a huge difference and a huge difference and an impact on what you're actually taking to your body. Now, if your protein is taken from a source that is highly stressed, let's say, for example, you're eating beef. Your beef comes from a cow that is being uh, fed corn, which is not its original food. The injector full of hormones to continue producing milk. Uh, as well as a whole range of antibiotics and stuff like that, then the quality of that meat, firstly, is not going to be very good. Secondly, then you put your cows uh, under a system of inhumane treatment and killing it inhumanely, then that cow is highly stressed. There'll be a lot of cortisol and a lot of chemicals within its meat, and then you're eating that. How can you not expect to fall sick? That's 100%. So the source of the food is very, very critical. And I don't think people pay enough attention to the source of where their food comes in. In Australia, for example? Australia definitely has tighter rules. Uh, Now, bear bear in mind, obviously a lot of the meats are commercially farmed as well. However, in Australia, you you will have to uh, 
um, declare whether your meats are organic, whether it's grass-fed, whether it's, you know, so there are specific classifications on how our meats are being farmed. Uh, let's say if I go to the market, for example, if I want to buy fish, I would always look for wild-caught seafood. That's the main thing. Uh, and Australia has to report whether that fish is actually wild-caught. And if it's not wild-caught, where is it from? You know, so if it's farmed, it has to say farmed in Vietnam or farmed in, so it's very, very specific. And in fact, nowadays in the supermarkets, it's mandated that if you are buying a foreign ingredients to put in your food, you have to say it. So it, it can be said imported from X and X country consisting of uh, 50% local ingredients and 50% exported ingredients. So the consumers now are very well educated as to identify where the foods are from. Now that gives us a much better understanding of then a, a good choice of, okay, now if you want to choose foods, are you going to take foods that are commercially farmed? Because now you know they're commercially farmed and you have a choice, but if you want to, that's your choice. Right, so the standards are also very, very different in Australia. So yes, there are commercially farmed foods, but then when you look at something that, let's say, is organic, then they actually have to report to you how it's organically grown. So if you're looking at uh, organic cows feeding on grass, where is where are your cows being grown? You can actually look into the farm, identify how their cows actually feed on grass. What a, what 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 constitutes organic grass? How is this grass being grown? So then you will be aware that okay, if you're eating an animal from the source. It's from a good source. It's ethically uh, done. It's it's from a good source, and you understand that the quality of meat is going to be a lot higher. For sure, I guess. I guess for us, that's where I guess we agree to disagree because I come from uh, ethical background, a sustainable background. So I think that's where kind of we draw the line. But I do see where you're coming from in mm. that sense because I think it's important to understand where your food comes from, of course, the source and the quality of it. Because at the end of the day, if you're eating sick and really, really um, diseased animals, you are going to get the same diseases and sickness. Hundred percent. And I think a lot of people, um, because of that will actually benefit from moving towards like a vegetarian or vegan lifestyle because of the toxins in the meat that they're unaware of, that they do not believe is important because when they look at their health, all they know about their health is what they're living right now. They don't know how to feel better until they start to drop it. But I think also a lot of meats, for example, have been given a bad reputation, not through the meat itself, but because of the toxins that's within the meat that people don't question or, or ask, you know, it's not like, oh, where's your meat from? Oh, meat's meat. No, it's important to understand where your meat's from because that could potentially affect your health. So I want to get your take on this because I co-host the Plant Fit Summit and I've sp spoken to a lot of experts on on these these aspects, on particularly um, animal protein and accelerated aging, mTOR, IGF-1, yep. um, because the human amino acid profile is very similar to to animal protein mm. and also i mean with studies that show that methionine restriction actually decelerates the aging process so what's your take on animal protein and uh, cellular aging okay well if you look at uh any sort of i, I think this con this question needs to be taken in context mm. with our current society right we are in a society now that prolongs life a lot more. And sometimes a lot of the life that we prolong, you you need to question the standard of living. Uh, is living on tubes, you know, with artificial limbs and all that kind of stuff, a standard of living? Now, when we look right now, we have the technology to prolong life, but what exactly is the quality of life? Uh, it is true that if you eat way a lot of animal protein, right, your, your tummy has to work a lot harder. Uh, and but also we got to understand. Let's say if you're looking at just uh, on the on the on the flip side, if I'm just eating vegetables and a whole bunch of vegetable proteins, we need to depend on the quality of where these vegetables are being grown. If your vegetables are grown in soil that have poor quality, then the nutrients in the vegetables will not be enough to sustain the body in this age and time, given the pollution, given the stress of this current environment. So this is where I guess. When you're looking at a, uh, from, my, from my point of yep. view, having animal protein is definitely a way of increasing the amount of protein that you're taking through the day, right? Also, complementing uh, the lack of nutrients from foods, food sources itself. But again, it's, to me, it's 
asking where the source of that protein is from. If it's from good sources, then you're complementing it well. But if it's from toxic sources, then you might as well not do that. Will it aid with the aging process? I think if you look at just the pathways, we understand that, for example, if you become extremely anabolic, okay, yep. you're building a lot of muscle, mTOR and stuff, mTOR is shown to increase aging, sure, right? Uh, but that is one way of looking at it. There are a whole range of other things that increase aging. So if you want to just look at aging in itself, I don't think it is wise just to isolate one pathway of anabolism like mTOR and to go, okay, mTOR accelerates aging. However, there are other pathways that may complement that, that may decelerate the aging pro pro process, which could be you know having a better sleep and all that kind of stuff, having better health that could increase growth hormone that decelerates the aging process and so forth. Right, so it is really a perspective that needs to, to be seen from a wider lens. It's like saying, for example, okay, testosterone is a great hormone. Testosterone is an anabolic hormone. If I, if, I take, if I have more testosterone, I'm going to have a lot more muscle. That is true, but muscular growth is based not just on testosterone, but a whole range of anabolic factors and chemical reactions. If we just look at testosterone, do you know what? I've seen individuals that are so high in testosterone that look really skinny and sickly because testosterone, unfortunately, isn't the only anabolic agent. And I've seen individuals that have lower than average testosterone levels that are jacked because the rest of the chemical pathways and, and anabolic factors actually working quite well. So that is only... So when we look at this question of aging, we need also not just to look at that, but okay, what is your stress? What is stressing you out, right? If you are eating a crap load of protein, and this is firstly toxic protein, it will stress you out. If you're eating a crap load of protein and your phenotype, your genotype doesn't do well with that much protein, that will stress you out. Well, you know what? No one, no one should be eating a crap load of protein unless you know your body can handle it from a genetic point of view. Some people actually do well with minimal amount of protein. They do really well with that and a load of uh, a high amount of carbs. Ectomorphs, for example, right? We say that as a, a phenotype. These sort of people do extremely well with a very high amount of carbs. We know that because their nervous system their, is, is such a high drive that they will need a lot of glucose to process that. That's what they thrive on. Now, if these people go for a high protein, high fat, low carb diet, they will suffer. From a health point of view, that's not what their DNA is made out from, right? So it, it is, I'll, I'll tell you, it's very similarly, if you look at a vegan diet, for example, there will be certain vegans that would thrive and do really well on very, very high carb. The vegan diet is already much high in carbs. They would do extremely well on a vegan diet. Well, there are other people that may do well initially, but then will start to show symptoms of not doing as well. Maybe their genetic code may not do well with such high carbs. Maybe they need an additional amount of protein within them. The problem with that is sometimes when you look at uh, vegetables and, and fruits and, and carbs and stuff, there is protein in there, no doubt about it, but it also comes with carbs. So for whatever protein they're taking in, they're increasing the amount of carbs as well. So that ratio of carbs and proteins for someone who may do better with more carbs and fat may not match. And so this is where the disparity comes in. This is where perhaps something like having a small amount of animal protein or fish or, you know, uh, other than vegan sources could potentially be helpful. I guess coming from the plant-based diet, the other thing that comes up is, obviously I advocate a low-fat, whole foods, plant-based diet. Yep. And there is this, and you mentioned carbs, and there is this connection and connection between carbs, uh, glucose, and, and insulin resistance and, and how people store fat because of the carbs. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, from a whole foods plant-based diet, it's really saturated fat that blunts the insulin receptor site because I understand that insulin is the key that opens the lock. It allows glucose to enter the muscle cells. So when there's a lot of saturated fat mm -hmm. in the blood, that, that little lock is jammed. As a result, there's a lot of excess insulin that's floating in the system and it can't get into the muscle cell, which spells insulin resistance. I know of a lot of doctors and a type 1 diabetic who's actually better managed his type 1 diabetes mm -hmm. through a whole foods plant-based diet. And doctors are now, um, doctors in the US are, have done a lot of studies and research that actually reversed um, type 2 diabetes by going on a low-fat, 
whole foods plant-based diet. So what's your take on the other side of, you know, saturated fat and insulin resistance? Well, again, I, I think it's important to not just look at the science from uh, one argument, but to step back and kind of look at the whole picture. So if you're looking also at saturated fat, saturated fat is a critical component of your body. We understand that everything from testosterone to your cells needs saturated fat. Your brain, in fact, is cholesterol, right? A large amount of your brain, we're talking up to 75% of your brain is cholesterol. Every cell in your body has what we call a cell membrane. This cell membrane is made out of unsaturated and saturated fat. It's a necessity. So we cannot discard saturated fat. It is part of our nutrition. It is part of our diet. It is what makes up our body. The problem now is where we're talking here of excess saturated fat. Now, of course, excess saturated fat means if you're enjoying a whole bunch of animal fats, you know, that's going to be a problem, right? Uh, if you think too much of a good thing is a good thing, that is not. If you're while, drinking, while we're at it, what's your take on like the whole ketogenic? I mean, that's a big, big buzz. Ex exactly right. So the whole ketogenic diet is this, okay, a high amount of fat is going to be good for your body. But again, that is individual specific. Some people don't have the capacity to break down that fat to utilize it. That's not a good thing. Where is the source of fat from? We understand that a lot of fat cells in the body store toxins, as a buffer. So your fat cells are useful to storing toxins. If you're very toxic, you are, you are typically a very fat person. Why? Because you, your fat cells will store these toxins. Now, let, it's the same for an animal. If you're eating a very a fattened animal and your animal is eating crap, that fat cells will store a lot of toxin. And so you price yourself in eating this fat wagyu piece of steak that's tasty. But if that has a lot of toxins, you're introducing toxins into your system. Now, is it the fat that's causing the issue? It's not. It's the toxins in the fat that's causing the issue, but you're not aware of that. Fat in itself is not a bad thing, but no one in the right mind will go out there and chew up one kilo of saturated fat a day. Okay, so typically when we're talking about fat, you want a good even balance. If you're having unsaturated fat, aim to have saturated fat. If you're having omega-6s, like most of us will, through our grains and our vegetable oils, aim to increase omega-3s. That's really what it is. You need a, a good balance balance of whatever you're, you're taking. So if you're looking here at uh, diabetes and you're looking here at fat and saturated fat and all that kind of stuff, then saturated fat to me is still a necessity. You definitely need it. You cannot discard it out of your diet. You may change the sources of it. So the way I do it is, okay, if I'm eating saturated fat today or, or over the next few days, then the, the few days after that, I will change it. I will go to unsaturated fat. You don't need a formula to how much you need to take. You just need to rotate the sorts of fats that you take in. And that's important. If you're taking coconut oil today, change it. Do Use olive oil tomorrow. Change it. Use macadamia oil the next day. Mm. It's a variety that plays a difference. When it comes to diabetes and insulin per se, most of the time you see a lot of type 2 diabetics. If they change to a whole foods, plants, you know, sort of diet, yes, they're putting carbs in their system. However, the quality of carbs is so different from the sugars that they put in. A lot of what is causing diabetes is that regular spike of insulin. Now, if you're going to be taking in, for example, some nice uh, you know, starch, say you're taking in some beans, which is resistant starch, and you're taking a whole bunch of broccoli, sure, it's carbs, but what does it have to do with your blood sugar? It doesn't spike it. The people that became type 2 diabetics weren't there because of a whole food plant-based diet. They were there because of a sad diet That's in the right. first place. Exactly. They were there because they were eating foods that were highly sugared. And which processed. Is, yeah, as well. and processed. That shoots up their, 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 their sugar. And because of that, they have to release a, a lot of insulin. So you get an insulin spike and an insulin drop. It's actually nothing to do with the quality of foods. So, like you said, whole foods, plant based diet, if you're taking lots of fruits and good fruits and vegetables, that will not get you fat. That will not get you. You know, that in fact could reverse diabetes. So perfect. That's great. Before we kind of move on to a little bit about training, I want to know some of your hacks. I saw a few of your videos. It's like closing your mouth, using a pen, <laughs> using your pen to poke into your your acupoints, all these kind of stuff. I want to get into that in, in just a bit. But just as we kind of wrap up the nutrition session, I mean, on a plant-based side, um, we talk about whey and boosting IGF-1. Mm -hmm. So what is your take on whey? Because from from my, from my side of um, from my side of things, because IGF one not only boosts muscle cell growth, it boosts cancer cell growth as well. Um, so what's what's your take on whey? My takeaway is not so much about that, but it's about the intolerance that people build up to whey. Remember, whey is a constituent of milk. 
uh, and the way cows uh, and the method of of, of uh, rearing cows nowadays is definitely not a healthy way of doing it. You know, a lot of cows' milk is sustained and prolonged because these these cows are being injected estrogen, right? Because otherwise, they only can have milk for a particular season after giving birth. So you are having highly antibiotics uh, antibiotic-tized milk uh, that you are converting into whey. Now, expect the quality of whey to be horrendous. Then you are taking that into your system and you are wondering how it affects you. How does it affect you? You're taking a whole bunch of antibiotics, a whole bunch of chemicals, plus on the fact that a lot of whey, you may not even have the enzyme lactase to break down lactose. So whey will affect you from a food intolerance point of view. Uh, So most people, I understand, will not be tolerant to whey, but they still take it. So just purely from that aspect, I'm not a big fan of whey. All right. I think that definitely, uh, even though whey has its definite benefits, you need to be tolerant to it before you can take it. And again, the source of whey. If you're taking whey from a grass-fed organic cow uh, that's been living a ha- happy, healthy life, then fine, that's great. But if you're not, I, I really think that you shouldn't just be looking at the brand, but looking at where the whey is actually from. Now, whey, the, what we understand about whey right now is a lot of studies that initially has been done on HIV patients because HIV patients have suppressed immune systems. And so they actually studied the quality by taking whey, actually how that helps them. And it's been very effective in, in boosting the immune system for one because of all the immunoglobulins that the, uh, the whey has, but also it helps to increase muscle mass for these individuals. So obviously, the bodybuilding community has hopped on that and gone whey is good for you. But whey is only good if you can utilize a high-quality whey and you can absorb it. That's great. Uh, typically, with our clients as well, because we understand that a lot of people have been on whey before, they will be intolerant to whey. So a good substitute for that is either you take branched chain amino acids uh, or essential amino acids or even use a, a whole-spectrum plant protein. So we're really big on that as well. Now with plant proteins, I think the main thing is that you cannot assume that you are not uh, intolerant to plant proteins. So most plant proteins, most people will be uh, non-allergenic to. You handle it well. Well, Funny enough, I got tested for food intolerances and I stayed away from whey. But you know what? I'm intolerant to plant protein. What what specific constituent? Pea protein. Oh, pea. I can't actually handle pea which is really interesting. Uh, and you, and within my intolerance, I never picked it up. I never picked uh, any sort of uh, lethargy. I never picked up any irritation with it. Uh, I did feel a little bit bloated, but I did not attribute it to plant protein because in my head, plant protein is non-allergenic. But after my uh, get, getting a, a blood test, well, I was, non, I was uh, uh, not allergic, but intolerant to pea protein. So I reckon if I took rice protein, that wouldn't be an issue. But most proteins that it's are higher, with pea. exactly, is pea. So pea is, tends to be a higher amino acid profile. Most plant-based proteins out there actually use pea. Because pea is more tasty and has a, has a better profile. Rice, for example, is very sandy. Yeah, it is. That's why. And, and hemp as well. Yep. So if I were to rotate, um, I may use whey. I might use hemp. I may use rice. But to be very, very honest with you, I don't touch any of that. Yeah. Exactly. You know, at the end of the day, most of your nutrition should really come from food. Mm. Supplements is just what, three to five percent of your daily calorie intake. I mean, that's that's my perspective at least. So I guess now shifting gears to the training, I mean, um, of course I still remember the time that we were training and you did this this voodoo thing on my my, my wrist. Voodoo, yeah. Wrist in my my I can't remember where else. So I wanna know, like I saw this recent video that you did with Lenora mm. about the tongue. Tell me about that whole that whole um, idea of how the fact that your mouth is closed, you actually have a more efficient delivery of strength. I think a lot of the emphasis on the tongue has been underplayed. Your tongue is actually a critical muscle. Obviously, the movement in your tongue dictates speech for one. So apart from that, it's very critical. But the position of your tongue uh, actually dictates the shape of your face. If your tongue is incorrectly placed, the shape of your face is... The, the way your jaw is constructed around your mouth is it, it's off-center. So it actually plays a massive role. And this comes across as well when your teeth are being crooked. So the position of your tongue may not actually be right. Yeah? But theoretically, this is how it is. When you are, your tongue should be placed in a neutral position. When you, you swallow right now, so you just close your mouth and you swallow, your tongue should automatically move to the palate, the roof of your palate, and the tip of your tongue should ideally be in front of your two front teeth. 
So that's your neutral resting position of your tongue. If that's not the case, then the position of your tongue is off and you need to practice that. So in that position, you're bringing your body back into neutral, right? Now, often when we train, when it gets very difficult, the rep's quite uh, tough, we tend to open our mouth or we scream. And when we do that, the tongue moves away from the neutral position, right? Uh, you would find that interestingly, if you see the uh, clip that I, I did with Lenora, you realize that when the tongue is off the neutral position, when the mouth is open, she doesn't have enough strength to resist me when I pressed against her hands. But when I get her to swallow and close her mouth, put the tongue back in that neutral position, all of a sudden, there is an increase in strength. Now, that's quite a funny thing. What happens is that when your tongue is in this neutral position, it, what it actually does is it engages your deep core muscles. It closes a neurological loop that enables your deep core muscles to be activated. And when your core muscles are activated, we understand that strength emanates from a stable and strong core. That means your, your extremities become a lot stronger. So it makes a big difference whether your tongue is hanging down or it's been closed. So next time when you're doing a set, for example, sometimes when you're tired, you, you open your mouth. But if you want to press that extra last rep or two reps out, close your mouth, swallow, and let your tongue go back to its neutral position. Keep it there and keep your eyes open as you press through the weight. Uh, your eyes is, is, is another one, right? Mm. Because it's your vestibular senses. If you close your eyes, you tend to lose balance. When you lose balance, you lose strength. If you keep your eyes open, you got more balance, you find more strength. That's really, really fascinating because I when I think about some of those like gym blokes and they're just doing their lateral flies mm -hmm. and their, their tongues are out. And yep. So it's it's actually counterproductive. It's counterproductive. Yeah, it is. Wow, that's fascinating. So I guess that's, that's one aspect. Maybe you could share beyond uh, concepts of tempo. Maybe you could share a little bit more on how people can optimize their training in the gym. Again, it's asking what is the goal mm. of the climb. Now, one thing I like to talk about is this concept of efficiency mm -hmm. versus inefficiency of movement. The body was designed to be extremely efficient. That means you give us a load of weight and we want to move it in any way possible. So that's what people do. They go to the gym and they do a bench or they do a squat and they try to move it in any way possible using all their muscles, right? So whether it's good form or bad form, who cares? I just need to move the weight. That's what your body was designed for, efficiency. Now, if you are training for strength, sure, efficiency is, is a good thing. However, if you're training to sculpt your body and build muscle effectively, then you need to reverse that thinking. The paradigm shift here is looking at inefficiency of movement. Essentially, making a simple movement difficult instead of making a difficult movement simple. So for example, if I'm doing a bicep curl, if I'm swinging my whole body to lift a weight, that's efficiency, right? Your body wants to move the weight efficiently using all its muscles. But if I get you to isolate yourself, that means you're not meant to swing your back, you're not meant to use any other part of your body except your biceps, then it's inefficiency. You're focusing on one muscle and you're bringing the weight up slowly, contracting your biceps when you can actually bring it up fast. You're going against what your body's aiming for. Why is that the case? Inefficiency is a great way to increase mind-muscle connection. So it increases that ability for your mind to contract the right appropriate fibers that you desire. When you do that, you start to increase that tension that you create in that muscle. We understand that tension is actually an important component to build muscle, right? Without tension, you cannot effectively lead to hypertrophy. So I think a lot of people, when they go to the gym, they intend to move the weight, but they're not effective in building that tension. That tension is built through the inefficiency of movement. And that's what most people need to focus on. So tempo is one thing. Yes, you can follow tempo of 4010 or 2010. But if you're not concentrating on building that tension, you're still inefficient. Mm. It really depends on your goal. And I, I think that's why it, I, I always laugh when they say functional functional training. Because functional training is functional. It's just like the word natural being thrown around loosely. That's exactly uh, I agree because um, a lateral raise may not be functional um, for a crossfitter, but it's functional mm. for a bodybuilder. Correct. Yeah, and I think uh, efficient movement is not functional for a bodybuilder, but it's efficient for a crossfitter. Exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly it. So it depends on what the goal is. Mm. I think it really comes back to a goal. And I think for me, it's you were my mentor and I was learning from Charles Poliquin and I know he's a 
very big mentor of yours yeah. and, and a dear friend. And mm. I would love to kind of go back to, you know, a little bit of what were your highlights? I know he's, he's passed on and he's, his legacy lives on, of sure. course. Yep. What were some of your highlights throughout him being your mentor? Mm. I think uh, the interesting thing about Charles was he was a walking encyclopedia, obviously. Oh, he he knew so much. He read a lot. Uh, but whenever Charles spoke, he commanded a lot of respect. Uh, when I did a lot of his courses, and I remember paying exorbitant amounts of money to go for a, a consult with him, often what I got from the consult and what I looked to get out the consult wasn't the information that he was giving me. It was actually the way he delivered the information. Uh, the way Charles delivered information gave me an understanding of some how someone would have a certain mindset um, in in becoming successful. Because often when you look at uh, successful uh, individuals, it's not about what they say, it's about how they say it and what they've done. So kind of working with Charles was about that. When, he, when I went to a course, yes, the information was great, but I, I wanted to see how he delivered that. I wanted to see what was his underlying, uh, you know, um, motivation in delivering that when i when i saw uh the this consults that i sat with him and asked him about business wasn't just about the information he gave me was how he gave me that information you know so i picked up all these little things from him uh, and i really felt that those little things was what actually contributed to my growth as a, as a coach and who you are today absolutely yeah speaking of who you are today you're not just a coach but you're fellow father yes the face of your life how's that journey been and how has fatherhood impacted your way of living um and and just life in general i couldn't say man i tell you words is not enough um to describe this right i mean as as we both have become fathers Indeed. it's it's the most amazing thing ever uh my motivation my drive has completely obviously switched from just pursuing what I want to pursue to there is a reason why I want to do what I do. Uh, and obviously my family is the number one reason. My, my beautiful wife, Tatiana, and, and my son, David, is the reason of pursuing what I'm pursuing. Uh, my goal is really not only to make them proud, uh, but to be able to give them a lifestyle where, you know, they can live well. Um, and yeah, that, that forms the basis of everything. You know, the, the the tough thing now is traveling so regularly yeah, to be able, yeah, to be able to teach and and to to share my passion, but also at the same time remembering in my head, hey, that's that's my little one, and it's my wife waiting for me, and I can't wait to get back and spend time with them. Yeah, hundred percent agree. I mean, ever since Sienna came into my world, my goodness, it's like a fire in me has been lit as well. And and you're right because back in the day, it's about success. It's about all right, I need to get out there do do stuff for me. But now it's no more about me. It's about uh, supporting M and as Sienna grows up it's about education giving them the same 100%. opportunities we have both um, fortunately received you got your education in Singapore and of course in Australia as well mm. and for me to be able to come to Australia and broaden my horizons and, and yeah I think uh, a child really really changes you but but at the same time um, it also makes you appreciate the simplest things doesn't it? Absolutely it, it, it does it, it not just the, I mean the, the, the simple things is it makes us realize what actually matters. Mm, 100%. Is that if you have lost everything in the physical that matters, that you think money, house, whatever, you still have that smile that you can go back to, you know, and that makes things all worthwhile. Just to kind of wrap up, and this is a question that I ask um, everyone yeah. uh, as a final question. So what does being awake mean to you? I think what being awake means to you is being conscious of all your actions and what you're doing. Uh, consciousness means you're not regretting anything. You choose to do something and you make an informed decision to make something, whether it's informed about your emotions or whether it's informed via you know, theory or whatever the case is, you make a decision and you do it. Uh, being awake also means that, it, to, to me anyway, it's understanding what you're really living for. You know, anyone, everyone has their own goals and being awake to many people can mean something different. Mm. Some people's goals are money. Being awake to them means getting, you know, working hard for money by all means. Uh, but for me, I think it's digging deeper into what actually matters. And 
money's great, but now, like you said, with my family ahead of me, that's what I set my eyes on. And that's what, uh, that is what wakens me is if what I'm doing doesn't make sense to my family or bettering my family, then why am I doing it? Indeed, I love it, love it. For the listeners out there, how can they get in touch with you and what you do? Mm. Uh, well, great. If uh, if you're interested to hear more about what I can share or my, my topics, uh, if you're on Instagram, uh, make sure you check me out. It's Ben Performance Coach. Uh, you can also find me on uh, on the website, which is trainasp.com.au. So I'll spell that T-R-A-I-N-A-S-P.com. .au and you'll find information uh, on my courses and what we speak about, what we believe, as well as any sort of training information that you might want to get um, information out from. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Ben. It was a, a great chat. Bit of a, uh, you know, it's really, really good to catch up again. Reminiscing. Re- really. Reminiscing of the, the good old days. And I think uh, it'll, be, it'll be great to see what you do and, and just with Australian Strength Performance and I guess co- coming to Singapore maybe more often. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you so much for having me here. It's also wonderful to uh, just for me to say to be able to see you doing what you're doing uh, with a podcast like this, but not just that, actually seeing you excel in what you're passionate about uh, and uh, made, to, to see your journey to where you are today, that's brilliant. You know, that's absolutely brilliant. I'm so proud of you. Uh, I, I think you're, you're doing a great job and I think, like you said, you are awake and... Yeah. You know, you just want to keep your eyes open. Indeed, keep, keep my staying eyes, awake. Keep staying awake, and and yeah, it's it's really for our kids, and and hopefully for a better world. I think that's that's where Absolutely. I come from. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks, bro. And that's today's episode. I hope you managed to get some insights into optimizing your training in the gym, or maybe set a fitness goal that you've always wanted to achieve. Thank you for tuning in today. I really appreciate you taking the time out to tune in. But more importantly, take the first step to learning and living a fitter, healthier, and more purpose-driven, conscious lifestyle. If you'd like more information on what was shared on today's episode, visit awakemethod.com slash podcast. Until the next one, live once, eat plants. Bye-bye.